Father, it is a privilege to be able to open up a book with your words recorded in, to hear from you. Lord, prepare our hearts. May you speak to us. But most of all, may you change us to be more and more like Jesus Christ, knowing what it means to live for him in our lives here in this world. Lord, bless us and may you be glorified. Amen. Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 3, and we start at verse 7. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, <clears throat> for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this to them because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. 
A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thank you, Dion. <clears throat> Friends, what a passage. Uh, I'm going to pray again. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you might help us uh, to sit at your feet today in humility, um, in obedience, that we might learn from you. Please encourage our hearts. Please challenge us where we need to be challenged and lift us up where we need to be lifted up, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, if you are new with us, we're the third week in, in a series through Mark's Gospel. Um, we are punching through Mark's Gospel pretty quickly uh, through to Easter this year, um, getting through the, whole, whole, the sweep of the whole Gospel. And if you're here a few weeks ago, um, perhaps you remember uh, the big outline of Mark's Gospel. There's one question that dominates the first half of Mark, those first eight chapters. Uh, it's a question that kind of is actually answered in the very first verse, but then is sort of played out through the rest of the Gospel, these first eight chapters. The big question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, there's lots of ways people can answer that. Uh, and um, there's some ways which are not actually all that helpful. Some popular images uh, that you know, get um, sort of shared can give the image of Jesus as basically a really super-duper nice guy, uh, really safe, inoffensive Jesus. Um, okay, here's some examples of this. Um, Jesus seems to hang out with lots of animals, just be really, really good with them. Can we get some of the... There we go. I mean, how could you not love that? Or the next one's even better. There we go. Um, look at that sort of chiseled jaw. and there's, It's just this, this really super-duper nice, safe Jesus. The next one, he sort of seems to have rays coming out of him. Um, and the, the last picture up there, how could you not like this guy? Um, how could you not like this guy? Well, I don't know if you've seen those kind of images shared or the kind of view of Jesus that gets put around. It gets to something actually really important. And in a few weeks, we're going to meditate a little bit on a passage uh, in chapter 5 that brings out the um, incredible kindness and grace and mercy of Jesus, which just oozes from the gospel. But in today's passage, we're going to see there is another aspect of Jesus that's really crucial for understanding who he is, that doesn't quite fit with safe Jesus. Um, one of the striking things about Mark's gospel is we are barely three chapters in 
And already people are trying to kill Jesus. So you, we didn't read this verse, but if you've got your Bibles open, you can see the verse just before where we started, chapter 3, verse 6. It'll come up on the screen, hopefully. Uh, 3, verse 6 says, uh, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. Now, apparently these two groups, uh, they didn't like each other at all. They had nothing really in common. Um, uh, it'd kind of be a little bit like one nation joining up with the Greens, if you kind of have that in mind. That's from what I understand, the kind of thing that's going, like really surprising um, kind of mixture. But they have, this, they have this common enemy. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. How they might kill Jesus. Well, in our passage, uh, flowing on from that, we're going to see how Jesus brings conflict with him. He, he, he sort of brings out conflict. Uh, this is no safe Jesus. Uh, there is, I couldn't resist putting another C.S. Lewis quote in this week again. We had one last week, but this is just so relevant to our passage. Uh, C.S. Lewis in a really wonderful book called Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it and you're interested in reading it, I do encourage you to do that. He wrote this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Puts it so well, doesn't it? And can you see, this, uh, we'll, we'll sort of bring some of those things out as we look through this passage. But you get the sense that, you see what C.S. Lewis is saying there, if you really understand, if you, if you take Jesus at his word, uh, there's no way he can be just a nice guy, uh, a good, interesting philosopher, a nice moral teacher. Uh, he's either mad or he's evil, or he is who he says he is. Uh, the people in our passage this week are beginning to see this. They, they're starting to get a sense for this um, in, in what Jesus um, says and does. Uh, it's helpful for us to see what it is about Jesus, though, that causes this reaction. They're starting to see this, and they start to kind of, they start to separate into different groups as they respond to Jesus. Uh, why are the religious leaders already plotting to kill Jesus? Well, um, if you are here last week, you would have seen 
Um, the, the seeds of that were already starting. Jesus uh, is claiming something that only God can claim. He's claiming to be the one who is able to forgive sins. Um, he can, he's claiming to do what only God can do. Uh, between last week's passage and this passage, um, there's this uh, controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders over the Sabbath, uh, one, of their, one of their great defining, um, uh, one of their great defining features as Jesus sort of reinterprets that around himself. Uh, and here he just keeps turning up the heat in our passage here. He just keeps sort of twisting the screws. So Mark 3, verse 7. Um, remember, um, the, uh, there's a bunch of people who have just started plotting to kill him. And then we read, Jesus withdraws. Probably a good idea. <laughs> uh, with, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. It's probably withdrawing out, out of uh, Capernaum, the city they were probably in, to the Lake of Galilee. Uh, he withdraws, but still, and you're starting to pick this up through Mark's Gospel, at this point at least, the crowds keep following him. A large crowd from Galilee followed. Uh, then in verse 8, they, they hear, they've heard about everything he was doing. Now, again, this is sort of parallel to the things we looked at last week. Uh, they're not hearing what Jesus is proclaiming, what he's saying. That's what he's there to do. He's come to proclaim the kingdom of God. But you get the sense with this crowd that they're not really that interested in that, in his message. They are there because they think he can do something for them. He can work a miracle for them. They're they're coming in droves, um, so many of them. Many people came to him. And they come to him from all over. You can, um, there's this list in verse 8 there from Judea, from Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, there's a map that should come up on the screen that's going to show you those regions. Um, you can see up there... I've, uh, the yellow circle up there is where Jesus is by the Lake of Galilee. And you see the red circles there um, are the regions that are mentioned here where people are coming from. Uh, that's, Mark's intentionally actually put those regions in. Why has he done that? Uh, he's, he's, he's trying to let us know that all of Israel, the whole people of God, are coming to Jesus. It's like this group is representative of the whole nation. People from everywhere are coming to get a piece of the action, and it's a scene of real chaos. We're going to return to that in a little bit, but let's keep reading this passage. It's a scene of complete chaos. There are people clamoring to get a piece of this miracle worker. Verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have an evacuation plan ready, a small boat ready for him to keep the people from from crushing him, from crowding him out. Um, you get the sense of this real chaos. There's a sense of threat here from this crowd. Um, he'd healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Have you ever been in a huge crowd that you feel like you're kind of being pushed around? Um, I, the, the really only time I've been in a crowd like that was at the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. Are really actually a bit frightening when you're in that kind of a crowd. You get that sense of chaos and threat and danger. Not only that, verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw him, 
they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Uh, it's possible that they're kind of mocking Jesus at this point. It's hard to read tone into that. But whatever the case, verse 12, Jesus, Jesus says that their testimony of him, I mean, they're right. Um, they're right. No other human, we don't see humans declare that and confess that until right at the end of Mark's gospel. But Jesus wants nothing to do with their testimony. They have no part in the kingdom that he is building. And so he tells them in verse 12, he gives them strict orders not to tell others about him. So there's this scene of chaos as all of Israel come to Jesus. And then there's this wonderful contrast as you head into the next little section. Mark's put these two little stories together for a reason, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. But let's look at verse 13. There's this utter contrast. Jesus went up on a mountainside. This image of uh, a quiet, secluded place. And instead of having anyone who wants just rushing to Jesus and clamoring to get a piece of him, you see the difference here. He goes, he takes himself away to the mountainside and he calls to himself those who he wants. And they come to him. This is a completely different kind of scene isn't it jesus is in charge he calls they come uh, they're not coming to get a piece of him they're coming because he has called them uh, they're not trying to set the agenda and manipulate jesus they're they're coming acknowledging that jesus is the one who sets the agenda and it says in verse 14 that he appoints these 12, 12 of them, that they might be with him, that they might kind of apprentice themselves to him, uh, learn from him, follow him, and also that he might send them out uh, to preach this message of the kingdom and to have that message confirmed by these uh, driving, this authority to drive out demons. He sends these 12 out to be his witnesses, to, to come in and, and spend time with him, and then out to be his witnesses to proclaim his kingdom. And then we get the list of who they are. Um, Simon, who is also known as Peter, uh, James and John, the two brothers with a great nickname, Sons of Thunder. Um, I wonder, you know, we're not told, but it's interesting to think why they were given that. Um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, we've already met Matthew, also known as Levi, last week. Uh, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, he calls this 12. Now, the, the big question is, why does he call 12? Why not 11? Uh, why not 13, for that matter? Is it just a convenient number that he plucks out of... Uh, the air well no actually it's no accident that jesus cho chooses 12 people 12 these apostles uh, the word apostle means one that is sent out uh, these people that jesus appoints and sends out why does he choose just 12 of them well i mentioned earlier that mark has put these two little stories next to each other for a reason he's put them next to each other intentionally and he's done it to, make a, uh, to show that Jesus is making a massive claim 
as he goes up to the mountain and he appoints these 12. The first scene, you have the whole nation of Israel clamoring into Jesus. Uh, Israel made up of how many tribes? 12? 12 tribes formed at Mount Sinai on the mountain. Israel is coming to Jesus and they, they don't, they don't, you don't get a sense that they really see who he is. And Jesus is saying here on this mountain, a new people of God is beginning. A new people of God is being founded, not on the 12 sons of Jacob, not on the 12 tribes, uh, but on these 12 apostles and their testimony. Uh, so these two scenes are next to each other on purpose. They contrast old Israel, not understanding Jesus, and in fact, something of a threat to his mission. And then this new Israel, a new people of God, gathered around Jesus. Uh, it's a little bit hard, I think, for us to grasp the immensity of what Jesus is doing here and how people would have perceived it at the time. Um, if, as Jesus has been going around proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, God's plan for the world is coming to its fulfilment, its climax in Jesus, uh, now his salvation would extend to the world, not just to one people, as it always was intended to do. That was always God's plan through the witness of his apostles. This is a massive claim. But there are some, as you read through, there are some who are getting some sense of just how big a claim this is, just how scandalous, actually, a claim this is. And they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it. And one of the big surprises that you read here is the first, well, one of the main groups in this passage that aren't happy about this is his family. His family. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think this is probably, it's one of those things that if this was a made-up story, wouldn't have been included. Um, the king of this new kingdom, whose family think he's a nutcase. Um, but let's read it, verse, verse 20. Jesus goes back into town. He enters a house, and again, no surprises, a crowd gathers. Uh, so that he and his disciples, they're not even able to eat. Uh, that's how sort of squashed and uh, crowded this, this crowd is. And then in verse 21, his family hear about this. Uh, it's possible they hear that he's not eating well, and that's why they come, but I don't think so. Uh, it's actually, they're hearing about what he's saying, they hear about what he's doing, and... Uh, what, he's, you know, what he's just done, this statement he's made with these 12 apostles. And perhaps they've been interested and sort of watching on, but this is just a step too far. They hear about it and they, they go to... Uh, the word here is actually really strong, to take charge of him. It has a sense of really forcibly restraining him. That's what the family are thinking at this point. This has to stop. It's too embarrassing. Um, he, he, he's out of his mind. This has to stop. They don't understand who Jesus is, do they? This, the, his family, they don't see who he is. They don't see that he's the one who has come to bring in God's kingdom. 
He is the one who's come to fulfill God's purposes for the world. Uh, you can only make sense of what Jesus is doing if you see and accept that. And they don't. They either don't see it or they don't accept it. Uh, and the only explanation they can come up with is, he's crazy. He's crazy. Well, uh, we're going to skip down to the end to see their reaction now. Uh, Mark often does this. As if you're reading through Mark, you might see it. He might, he'll sort of put two stories together, but he'll sandwich one in between the other. Um, we'll see that in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, but here, um, skip down to verse 31. This is See how Jesus responds to this. There's some other stuff that happens, which we'll look at in a moment. But uh, Jesus' mother and brothers, they, they set out in verse uh, 21... And down in verse 31, they get there, they, they arrive. And they're standing outside the house Jesus is in. They don't go in themselves. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, they stand outside and they send someone to get him. Um, you get the sense that they don't really want to, they kind of want to get someone in to just pull him out and then quietly and quickly whisk him away. Uh, Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they tell him, look, your family, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Just his mother and brothers, it's probable by this time that his father Joseph, his adopted father Joseph uh, has died. So uh, he's not part of the scene here. So he's got his family outside the house. And then he says something that would have just made everyone's jaw drop. Um, especially in this society um, where family was just so crucial to uh, your identity. Verse 33, he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looks at those seated in a circle around him. He's got people sitting around him at his feet. His family's outside calling him, saying, Be quiet. He's got these people sitting around him, listening to him, um, humbly submitting themselves to him and his words. He looks around at them and says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Here he is my family, the, my, my true family, he says. Now, it's... We've got to be a little careful here. The Bible has a really high view of family. That's one of God's wonderful gifts. It comes with sacred responsibilities that are upheld through the Old and New Testament. And yet, in Jesus' kingdom, there is a family that is more fundamental, more central to your identity. The true family of God are those who, are, who gather around Jesus, who sit in humility at his feet, who are obedient to his Father's will. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He's already re, sort of redefined the people of God. He's a new people starting, an, an, a new Israel, and here we have a new, a new family. Both of them gathered around Jesus. Okay. Um, Sandwiched in between those two blocks is this other part of this story, another conflict. So we'll jump back to verse 32 
um, in chapter 3. The teachers of the, of the law come down. That's interesting, isn't it? They, they come down from Jerusalem. Um, and from Jerusalem. Uh, so you get these aren't the local, the local clergy. These are the, the bigwigs uh, from central office. You know, this is the, the theological heavyweights, the Doctrine Commission, come to check out this upstart new preacher. They, they, the heavyweights come to give their verdict on Jesus. And what is their verdict? Well, they sort of, they come down from Jerusalem and straight away, this is their pronouncement. He is possessed by Beelzebul, another word for Satan. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. See, they, they don't um, argue with the fact that Jesus is doing incredible things. They just say, well, he's doing them through demonic evil power. Um, they, 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 don't, they don't say he's crazy, they say he's evil. He's actually empowered by dark spiritual forces. Uh, now, uh, perhaps for you this is a new or a strange idea. Um, our culture and the way in which it's been sort of formed so deeply by movements like the Enlightenment um, tend to see the world as a completely closed system, nothing in, nothing out. The Bible's worldview is different to that. Um, consistently, it pictures an unseen realm where dark forces are at work. And behind them, this personal figure of Satan. Uh, these religious leaders, are, well, they're, they're making a really strong claim about Jesus. They're saying Jesus is in league with the devil, with Satan. Now, if you've been reading Mark's Gospel up to this point, you can see how we're sort of set up to see how wrong that is. He is the one on whom the Spirit of God has come at his baptism and God has declared on him, you are my son, uh, whom I love. But these guys don't see that and, or they don't receive that, they don't accept it. And Jesus responds in, in a really incredible way. Um, we're doing a bit of jumping today. We're going to, he responds by telling these parables, and we're actually going to leave those to the end. Um, we're going to jump down to verse now to verse 28 and to see his warning. Jesus' warning against these religious leaders uh, who are saying that he is possessed, he's doing all these things through the power of Satan. He says in verse 28, Truly I tell you, um, you teachers of the law who've come down from Jerusalem and given your pronouncement that I'm doing these things through the power of Satan, truly I tell you, listen up, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Well, this is a um, part of this little section that has um, caused a lot of concern. Uh, it's caused a lot of debates. 
Uh, it's caused a, a lot of heartache and anxiety for some people as well. Um, and perhaps you're one here today who has experienced that yourself. Um, Jesus says that there is something, there is a sin, that this blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, for which there is no forgiveness, for which the person who does this will not be forgiven. What's going on here? Uh, there's a lot of concern about this, and I think a lot of misinterpretation of what's actually going on uh, as you read through this. What is going on? Well, the first thing to say is the emphasis uh, uh, of this little, these couple of verses is actually verse 28. Um, verse 20, 28, the wonderful, incredible truth that all sins can be forgiven. All sins can be forgiven. Every slander... That is why Jesus, Jesus came. That is his wonderful work that we, we meditated on last week in, uh, from chapter 2. But Jesus does want to say more than that. He wants to warn these religious leaders that not everyone will be forgiven. And I th he, It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say that they have committed this sin. Uh, he says this because of what they're saying. I take it that means he's actually wanting to warn them, um, urge them to turn back from this. Uh, if they continue down this road, they will find themselves eternally shut out from the kingdom of God. So what's going on? Well, I think it's pretty... Uh, I th I'm... I think it's clear here that Jesus is not talking about just a one-off comment that you might have accidentally made or a thought that you might have had once that you're not sure whether you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and it's hanging over your head for the rest of your life. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, please, if you have thought that in the past, please put that to rest today. Uh, that is not in Jesus' view here at all. What is in view is a settled conscious, deep hatred of Jesus. That means that you judge him and all he stands for to be evil. A settled, conscious opposition and hatred of Jesus that means you judge him and all he stands for to be demonic and or to be evil. You call what is good evil. And so, friends, if you are troubled by this, it's actually a sure sign that you've not committed this sin, actually. If it has troubled your conscience, you can, it's a sure sign that God is actually at work within you and that you are not in this camp. Those who so fully reject and hate Jesus are not bothered by it. Are not bothered by it. Well, there's much more probably to say there. I'm going to move on, though. Please grab me afterwards if you want to keep thinking about that question. Um, Jesus in this passage is surrounded by conflict, isn't he? He's surrounded by conflict at each point. He doesn't give in to the conflict, uh, but he shows his power over it, his victory over it. Um, he doesn't... He is not overcome by the crowds. He, he withdraws and begins this new community. 
He's not overwhelmed by the immense pressure that he must have felt from his family. I mean, can you imagine that? Actually, some of you can, I know. Um, Jesus is not overcome by that, that immense pressure. Uh, Instead, he directs people's attention to this new family he's beginning. He's not overcome by these heavy weights. I mean, imagine the pressure Jesus is under. These, these are big, you know, these are guys with authority and power in society. And they come down and they condemn him for um, being satanic. <laughs> He's not overcome by that. Um, but friends, there is actually, an, though all of those things, this human conflict against Jesus, there's another conflict that's in view in this passage. And that's what I want to finish with and sort of land, at, land with. There's another conflict in view here that gets brought out in that little middle section there, um, verses 23 to 26, these parables that Jesus says in response to these teachers of the law. Verse 23, so Jesus calls them over to him and he begins speaking to them in parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. You see what he's saying here? It's actually making a really simple point. Uh, he's, just, he's showing how ridiculous the nature of their attack is. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, I was trying to think of an example of this. I know there are a few Strikers fans in, the, in, uh, in our church. Is that right? Adelaide's, no, no, no. Okay. Well, just imagine you're a Strikers fan. Oh, up the back. Hey. Oh, no. Well, just imagine. I think, it, did you come third? We came came third this year, is that right? We just sort of missed out. Fourth, okay. Just imagine the conversations for next year's sort of uh, getting ready for the season next year and there's a new game plan that gets put out. Travis Head, the captain, uh, he uh, tells everyone, he gathers everyone around and says, right, okay, here's our game plan. Here's how we're going to improve next year. We're all going to drink poison before each game. We're going to play blindfolded and with our arms tied behind our back. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you'd be happy with that, would you, Richard? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Of course, it's absurd to think that anyone would do that. That's basically what Jesus is saying here about this claim about what Jesus is doing, that it's actually from the devil. Jesus is destroying Satan's work. He's freeing people from Satan's grip. He's bringing light and life with him wherever he goes. It's so off base. It's, uh, not only that, actually the complete opposite is true. Not only is he not in league with Satan, he is in the business of bringing Satan's power to an end. That's where he lands in verse 27 there. In fact, with this interesting little kind of picture, this interesting story image, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Uh, It's a little bit difficult to get your head around this because in this sort of analogy, Jesus is the robber. You don't often think of Jesus as a robber, but that's what's going on. Uh, He's he's saying Satan is this, this, imagine Satan is this strong man and the house is this world that Jesus has come into. Uh, Jesus acknowledges the reality and power of Satan. He is this strong man. But Jesus is the stronger man. 
Jesus is the stronger man. And he has come to plunder Satan's house. He has come to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and bring them into his kingdom of light. And what this little middle section here does for us is it just raises the stakes of what's going on here, of the conflict that we're seeing here. See, this isn't just squabbles between different factions or parties. It's, it's not just conflict on a human level. It's not that Jesus taking the 12 up on the mountain was the beginning of some new revolutionary political movement uh, that would come and go. It, it's not that Jesus um, claiming that the people with him or his family is just a sign that he's just a disaffected son who needs some space from his family or something like that. The conflict that's going on here is not actually at its heart this conflict on a human level. There's something much bigger. The real conflict Jesus has come to engage in isn't versus the religious leaders or his family it's not verse flesh and blood. His, his family, incidentally, many of them actually become his, do enter into his, his family, his kingdom. Um, it's not verses flesh and blood. Uh, Jesus has come to do battle with Satan and all he represents. We've already seen this in Mark, haven't we? Right in the first week when we looked at Jesus being thrust out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and defeating him there, well, this is just playing out all through Mark's gospel and is on view here. He has come to break Satan's hold over this world and to free his captives. That is the victory he won at the cross. You see, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has taken away Satan's great power because he has won forgiveness for you. And... Um, Satan can no longer accuse you. That's his great power, actually, to accuse you, uh, to accuse your conscience. <laughs> he has taken that away at the cross. Um, we read the Colossian Creed earlier, this the wonderful little section from Colossians 1. You keep reading through Colossians, get to chapter 2, and there's this really great image of Jesus, or this um, teaching of the Apostle Paul, that Jesus at the cross was God's triumph over all the spiritual forces of darkness. <clears throat> so friends, uh, Satan is still active. He's roaming around, uh, we read in 1 Peter. But what, Jesus, what, we, what Mark's gospel is showing us is that he might be a roaring lion, but he's a toothless lion, actually. He is defeated, and his end is sure. His end is sure. And those who are part of Jesus' kingdom need not fear him. Well, there are lots of... What do we make of all this? Uh, there are lots of responses to Jesus through this passage, aren't, aren't there? You get the crowds, they're kind of responding by their... A bit, a bit ambiguous in their relationship to Jesus. They're interested in him, they like him, but you get the sense it's really just for what they can get from him, not because of who he is. Uh, you get these, the demons who fall in, in maybe mockery or maybe terror. 
You get his family who are just shocked and embarrassed by him. You get these leaders who outright oppose him and seem to have a real hatred of him. All of those are on the outside of Jesus' kingdom. They are, at, at this point in Mark's gospel, they, are, they haven't seen who he is and they haven't come to him and said, I want to be in on what you're doing. Who is in in, this little, in these stories? Who is in? Well, do you see that they're right at the end of um, the chapter? It's those who gather around Jesus. Uh, not to get something from him. You know, he's got lots of people gathering around him. But not to get something from him or, or to silence him or to accuse him, but those who gather at his feet to listen to him in humble obedience to let him set the agenda. In other words, another way that Mark's Gospel um, t- says this is it's those who repent, who turn from their sin and who believe, who entrust themselves to Jesus. Those who repent and believe, who turn and trust. And friends, I, I think what all, you know, there's, there's so much going on in this passage, but as you take it as a whole, it is an incredible encouragement uh, for those who are part of Jesus' kingdom. If you are in Jesus' kingdom, then your king is not just the one who wasn't overcome by all this opposition, all this human opposition. Your king is the stronger man who has brought complete forgiveness at the cross and who has once and for all triumphed over Satan. So Jesus is not the safe and weak, inoffensive Jesus that you sometimes see in popular culture. And yet for those who do come to him in this kind of humble, obedient trust, he is the one who gives real, eternal wonderful safety both now uh, as we kind of live in the light of the cross and also for all eternity friends it may be that you recognize yourself as actually though not sitting at jesus feet but perhaps outside the house looking in Uh, god in his word is inviting you in to come and sit at jesus's feet to enter his kingdom, to be born again into his family, to be freed from Satan's grip, and to live in the true safety of having Jesus as your king. Don't put that off, friends. And if that's you, I would love to speak to you today. Please grab me afterwards. I might stay around down the front here afterwards for a little bit. Please do come and speak with me. Um, You can have good intentions over and over again but if you want to take that further today that would be a wonderful thing so please do see me afterwards but for all of us friends this is a great encouragement Um, and uh, as we see the reality of Jesus our victorious king let me pray for us we pray our God um, there's so much in this passage Uh, But we thank you for what we see here of Jesus. We thank you for this new kingdom that he was beginning, this new people of God. We thank you that he didn't um, 
kind of um, give in to the pressure and the conflict as he began that uh, from all around him, from crowds who didn't get what he was doing, from his, uh, from his family uh, who were embarrassed by him, from religious leaders who sought to discredit and oppose him. Uh, our God, we ask uh, that you might help each of us to be those who come to Jesus and sit humbly at his feet and fill us with the confidence, please, to know that in him we have your great victory and that is secure at the cross and through his resurrection. So we pray that you'll do that within us in Jesus' name. Amen.